Thanks, Dennis and Andrea. Well, folks, leave um, uh, leave uh, Philippians chapter three open in front of you. That'll be wonderful. I'm just going to do the same thing. So I get myself organised up here. And if you've uh, got the bulletin there as well, there's a an outline in the bulletin that'll be helpful to follow along. See what we're up to. Scribble down a few notes. Got a question? You could put in a comment slip and uh, put in the box, the white box at the back. Um, and we'll have a question and answer time at the end as well, or a question time. We'll see how the answers go. Now, we're often told, uh, we're often heard, I think, of, 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 I often hear at least, uh, this phrase here, believe in yourself. So it's sort of the self-help phrase of the 21st century, isn't it? It's the secret of success. You believe in yourself and things will go well. It'll fall in your lap and it'll be all right. Uh, now, you might have heard it in education, perhaps in um, Sporting circles in uh, talent shows or lack of talent shows or whatever they might be. Um, even in business, believe in yourself, that's the secret of success. Now, that type of confidence is not something that generally sits well with Christians, though, with followers of Jesus. The, the Bible tells us, of course, to be humble and uh, not overconfident or not, even, not arrogant. And, and that's what Psalm 73 touched on a little bit too, didn't it? And that sort of self-confidence or overconfidence, the believe-in-yourself type of confidence, well, that easily turns into an arrogance. And so it doesn't really sit well with us, this phrase. Well, I think the first 11 verses of chapter 3 in Philippians will help us as we think about this idea of confidence and particularly confidence before God. So have it open in front of you. I'm going to pray for us and um, we'll get cracking. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Father, thank you that you're a God who speaks to us. And we pray, Lord, that we'll be people that listen, that we put your words into practice, that we would, as your people, love you more and more. Help us to um, think about our own source of confidence in our life before you. Uh, challenge us, dear Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, most of us have had to write a CV or a, a resume at one point in our life, um, or more. So imagine for a moment that you're, you're moving into the Southern Highlands and you're applying for a new job. Right? Imagine that. And you're putting together your CV or your church resume. Think about what might go in that. Now to get your creative juices going, uh, here's, an, uh, this, uh, here's an apparently real, true example that I got off the internet. <laughs> so you need to you know, take that with a grain of salt. But it's a good story. Um, so this young man applied for a job at Macca's. Right? And when you apply for a job at Macca's, you fill in a form. It works like a CV or a church or a resume, I should say. And um, you, you fill it in and, and so forth. So they'll, they'll, uh, they'll ask you a question. It's usually just one word or a small statement. And then you fill in the blank afterwards. Okay? So the first one, the first question or statement that you had to respond to as part of the Macca's get a job uh, resume, if you want to call it a form, is uh, it just says sex. Now, this young man's answer is not yet waiting until I'm married. <laughs> not quite sure if he meant, they meant that. I think they meant gender. But anyway, um, uh, next one that the employer put on the form is desired position. His answer, company president or vice president. <laughs> but seriously, whatever's available. If I was in a position to be picky, I wouldn't be applying here in the first place. <laughs> No offence to any Macca's workers out there. 
Um, still going, desired salary. Bear in mind, it's a Macca's worker. 185,000 plus stock options and a severance package. If that's not possible, we can haggle, he writes. <laughs> Education, yes. Um, last position held, target middle management hostility. That's what he wrote, I don't know what it means. Salary, less than I'm worth, he writes. Most notable achievement, my incredible collection of stolen pens and post-it notes. <laughs> uh, I like this one. Available to work? Of course, that's why I'm applying. <laughs> May we have your current employer? If I had one, would I be here? <laughs> do you have a car? I think the more appropriate question is, do you have a car that runs? <laughs> now, the question is, a bit cheeky, isn't he? It's a bit cheeky. Did he get the job? The story is yes. There you go, he got the job. Amazing. Maybe they docked his creativity and sense of humour. Who knows? But apparently he got the job. Believe it or not. Now, what would you put in your resume? All right, get your little thinking caps on. Uh, I guess you'd put in your experience, the sort of work you've done before, uh, the types of skills you have, your character traits, those types of things. That's what you'd put in your resume, wouldn't you? Now, imagine that you've just joined a church. Okay, And now some churches, as part of the membership process, ask you for a church resume. Isn't that interesting? Uh, no, not really an Australian thing, although I have heard of it, uh, more so in some um, American churches. They ask you for the equivalent of your church um, resume. Now, we don't have that sort of thing here, you'd be glad to know. Um, we have what's called a functional membership so that means, though, if you can, you know, you're a member if you're committed to a gathering on a weekly basis, uh, if you're committed to serving somewhere, if you're committed to praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're committed to giving financially, well, then you can consider yourself a member. Right? That's what we are, a functional membership. We, we're not going to pull you aside and ask you for your church resume. But let's go with the idea for a minute, all right? This church resume idea. What, what would you put as your list of attributes Maybe you'd say, oh, I can sing a bit. You know, I'm a good song leader. I could do that. I, I'm a small group leader. done that before. I have theological education. I'm from a Christian home. I went to a Christian school. I went to Bible school. I've got the gift of hospitality. I can make a pretty mean scone. Maybe you put that there. Maybe you put you're a generous giver. Maybe even you just put down, well, my family. Look at my family. That's got to go on my church resume. Now, when you consider your list, this church resume, have a think about it. Have a look at it in your head. Are there things on that list there that make you feel more confident before God? Because you've got those things, you're thinking, yeah, God's pretty happy with that. It's pretty good, isn't it? Oh, I'm feeling pretty good because I've done those things. Well, we're going to have a look now at Paul's church resume, his religious resume, and we're going to see what he thinks of it. So if you've got your Bible there, flip over to um, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. We'll come back to 1 to 4 later on. In verse 5 he says, oh, I've got it on the screen, that's pretty good as well. 
if anyone else, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, that, that means human abilities, traditions, works, his church resume. Okay? So if anyone else has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcise on the eighth day. That's the day to do it, people. If you're going to be a Jew and a good Jew, you do it on that day. Uh, that's the tradition of the, of, um, that goes right back to the times of Abraham. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Well, that's a, that's a priestly tribe. Oh, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. He crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's. As for zeal, well, he even persecuted the church. Doesn't get any better than that. And as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. So this was Paul's church resume or his religious resume, and you really couldn't fault it. His, his credentials when it came to church and being religious were impeccable. He had every reason for confidence, if that's where we get our confidence with God from. Now, most of us won't have the opportunity or be tempted to brag about our Jewish ancestry or any ancient rites or religious heritage. But we may be tempted to find our confidence, yeah, in our giving. God must be pretty impressed with how generous I am. Or our successful families, or our status in the community, or even our spiritual gifts, our theological education, even our denominational alignment. Perhaps it might go something like this. We, it's not really something we, we blurt out, but we might have a conversation after church and... Um, it's a comment on where our confidence lies. So you might have found yourself in a conversation with a friend. You've heard about so-and-so, haven't you? you heard about so-and-so. Oh, what a mess. And the kids too. Or have you noticed we haven't seen so-and-so for a while? They've been quite slack, haven't they? That's not a good way to, to help people get back into church on a regular basis. But what you do, just quietly, ever so quietly, you thank God that you're not like that person or those people. And you find your confidence with God in the fact that I am giving a lot or I am turning up blah, 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 and so on. Your confidence swells and it's a misplaced confidence in what you've done rather than in what God has done for you. And Paul calls that confidence in the flesh, he calls it rubbish. When we rely on our own religious traditions, when we rely on our own confidence of what we can do, Paul calls it rubbish. Refuse, he calls it. It's rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. So, what does he say in verse 7? But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. See, what Paul does, he draws up this type of profit and loss statement. So we're going to go accountancy nerd for a while. Okay? If you've got that sort of bent, you're going to love this. If the thought of talking about accountancy is a real struggle for you, I want you to hang in there. Okay? I know that might be some of you. So he becomes like an accountant and a spiritual one. Now, when I was at uni, I worked for my dad's accounting practice, and uh, it was a whole new world of pain. Um, 
uh, and of boredom. I was actually in charge of the filing, accountancy filing. I don't think there's much more boring things that one can do with their time. But for $7.50 an hour, I did it, or whatever it was. It was pretty cheap. Um, it was an accountancy office. Uh, so, now there were systems everywhere in the accountancy office, uh, and, and, the, and the accountants didn't like it when the systems changed either. They got a bit sort of itchy and wriggly and didn't quite like that. They weren't very comfortable. They liked systems. Now, what Paul does here, he writes of a new system, a new accountancy system, a new profit and loss statement, because his old one would never reconcile. Paul looks back to his conversation, uh, sorry, he, Paul looks back to his conversion on the Damascus Road, when he became a Christian, where Jesus appeared to him, when his whole system of personal spiritual accountancy broke down. And all that accumulated profit of the years before slumped to rock bottom. And to his astonished gaze, there was presented in front of him Jesus, who at this point he'd despised and rejected. And there was Jesus as a completely adequate credit that would cover all his needs. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. You see, so on one side of the ledger, he puts everything he can think of that would be considered profitable. So for Paul, that was, remember, his ancestry, his parentage, his education, his Hebrew culture, his religious zeal, his legalistic righteousness, his church resume. But when the accountant's eye travels down that list and the sum total is added up, that's what accountants do, and the line is drawn under the completed sum, well, the answer is clear in one uncompromising word. Loss. It all amounts to nothing. Loss. There is nothing for his efforts. No grounds at all for confidence in the sight of God. But now, now in the place of loss, there stands Christ. And you notice there's a switch, there's a present tense now in Paul's words. Now there stands Christ who is alone grounds for confidence before God. Through faith in Christ, he is found righteous by God, right with God, forgiven, our sin forgiven. And it comes from God, we see. Last verse there. It comes from God. In other words, it's a gift. It's not something that you can earn. You can't earn it. Not through any righteousness of my own, he says. Even with a church resume like his. Wow. Now, what does all this mean for your church resume that you, you worked out before? What is it that truly gives us confidence before God? Uh, is it my Christian family? Is it my generous giving? All good things. Is it my religious zeal? Is it my Christian schooling? Or the fact that I work in a Christian school? Does that make, give me more confidence before God? Or should it? Or that I'm an Anglican? Does that make me more confident before God? Or my good standing in the community or any other good works? Well, the answer 
that we see here in God's word is a resounding no. That's not what brings us, gives us confidence before God. None of those things. What truly gives us confidence before God, makes us righteous before God, is knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, as, Je- as Paul puts it. That Jesus has done all that is needed to give us that confidence before God, that we are forgiven, that we're right with God, that we stand with him. And compared to this surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, well, all, that, all, the, other, all the rest is really rubbish. And that's why, when we go back to verse 1, he's able to rejoice. Have a look at verse 1 for a minute with me. He says, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. I do love when Paul writes, finally, and you look at it and think, hold on, there's a fair bit to go, isn't there? It's two more chapters. It's like that, um, it reminds me of that joke, aimed at preachers who um, use the word finally and then have three more points to go. So, you know, the child asks his dad at church what the preacher meant when he said finally, and his father muttered, nothing. <laughs> well, the truth is Paul's actually picking up on the theme of rejoicing that he, that he talked about in chapter 2, 17 and 18. But friends, we're not rejoicing in Jesus when we place our confidence in our church resume, in our religious resume. Our confidence is in ourselves then and not in what Jesus has done for us. Now the problem in Paul's day, and we, if we look, as we see in verse 2, is that there were people, and in our day today, there were people who taught otherwise. And we've already touched on a bit of that in chapter 1 as well. There were people who taught that, yes, trust in Jesus, but you've got to do this as well. You've got to tick this box, you've got to come to our church, you've got to take this and do that to feel confident before God. But that's a lie, Paul says. And he actually says, watch out for that type of person, that type of group, that type of teaching that says, put your confidence in this plus Jesus. That's a gospel plus, And that's ripping the heart out of, a gospel, out of the gospel. Verse 2, he says, watch out for those dogs. It's a, it's a strong word, dogs. And uh, the other day, a friend said to me uh, about this passage, they said, uh, notice it's not cats, because cats are good, aren't they? <laughs> That's all I say. But dogs aren't in those days. Uh, dogs were, you know, they, they were a mess. They were a menace. They roamed the streets. They were, you, don't, you didn't want to be compared to a dog. These men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. Let's tie a few things together. And I want to make, you can see in your outline there, there's two observations about Christianity. I've just called it authentic Christianity. What does it really mean to follow Jesus? Here's the first one we see today, is that Christianity is a relationship, it's not a religion not about religious rites and rituals. Paul had been a religious fanatic. That's what he had been. Earnestly building up a religious resume that he thought would impress God and keep him happy. Friends, I wonder if Paul's story is your story. Does your confidence before God rest on your religious resume? If it does... Today's the day to turn it around and simply trust in Jesus. 
Simply cling to his cross and not in anything you can bring. Friends, when Paul met the living Lord Jesus, everything was turned uh, right side up. Jesus can do the same for you. Let's not slip back into that. Paul discovered Jesus was a person whom he could know, who, who could be known. Jesus initiated a relationship, a friendship with Paul. It wasn't the chummy mateship of equals. He still knew Jesus was his Lord, but it was a real personal relationship. And like any good relationship, that's not any good relationship is not judged on performance. Isn't that true? And then second, authentic Christianity is about forgiveness and not moral performance. I skipped a few. It's about forgiveness and not moral performance. That, that's, that's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? It's not about what we do. We can't earn it. It's about trusting and clinging to Jesus. Paul used to consider himself righteous before God because he hadn't blatantly transgressed God's laws. But meeting Jesus Christ shattered that confidence he had in his own performance. For Jesus had died under the curse of God, shouldering the curse of humanity's sin, and that included Paul's sin. Christ's death exposed Paul as a sinner, just like you and me. Friends, why, why, would, why would Jesus die if Paul's or our performance was adequate? Think about that again. Why would Jesus die if Paul's or our performance was adequate? So on that Damascus road, when, when the Apostle Paul turned to serve the true and living God, trusted in Jesus, he came to the realisation that he was far off from God because of his sin, his own reliance on his moral performance. He needed forgiveness. He needed Christ's death. He needed Christ. And God invites us to come to that same realisation today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day, every day, as we cling to the Lord Jesus. And that's why at the end there he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. I want to know Christ more and more and more and more. Let's cling to him, shall we? How about I pray? Father, we thank you for the confidence that we have in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he died on the cross and rose again and is reigning with you today. Lord, we thank you for the righteousness we have in Jesus as we trust in him. We thank you for the forgiveness we have for our sin. We ask, Lord, that we would cling to Jesus. We'd find our hope, our confidence in him and not in anything else that we might do, that we might try to bring. So we pray these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.